Hi, this is Barbara Feldon, and you're listening to TV Confidential. Ed Robertson with a reminder that this portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Factor. If you want to eat better this year and are looking for fast, healthy, restaurant-quality meals that are ready to eat and easy on your budget, Factor is the perfect solution. Sign and save right now by going to factormeals.com forward slash talktv50 and use code talktv50 to get 50% off your order. That's code talktv50 at factormeals.com forward slash talktv50. TV 50 to get 50% off. Chuck Carter is with us as we bring you part two of a conversation that began last week with Simon Napier-Bell. Simon Napier-Bell, legendary record producer, songwriter, author, journalist, documentary filmmaker, raconteur, and the manager of such music greats as the Yardbirds and Wham. Simon's latest film, The Real George Michael, is available now for viewing on demand on Amazon, Tubi, Roku, Peacock, many other platforms across the United States and Canada. While his books on the music industry include Black Vinyl, White Powder, Sour Mouth, Sweet Bottom, I'm Coming to Take You to Lunch, Tarara Boomdie, The Dodgy Business of Popular Music, and You Don't Have to Say You Love Me, a history of the music scene in London in the swinging 60s. It also bears the title of the international hit record that Simon and Vicky Wickham wrote together in 1966 for Dusty Springfield. We'll ask Simon how he and Vicky came to write You Don't Have to Say You Love Me a little later on in our conversation. In the meantime, all of Simon's books are available Amazon.com, other online retailers. You can read Simon Napier-Bell for free at Substack.com forward slash at Simon napier Bell. We talked a little bit, Simon, about some of the things you learned when you first became a manager of the Yardbirds and other music groups. What first got you into managing? Was that something you planned to do or, or was that sort of an accident? Well, I, I was in the film industry. I've been a musician. I mean, I came to America when I was 18, mm-hmm. 17, 18, and, or America, Canada. I couldn't name it. I had to go to Canada and that's where I was working as a physician. And then um, I, 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 it wasn't right for me that life I mean I, I, I dreamt when I was a kid of being the most famous jazz musician in the world but that also included being black and that didn't work out very well you know I, I, <laughs> when you were young you believe anything can happen as you get old you've no it doesn't you know? <laughs> so you know I came I got disillusioned with what being a professional musician was I mean when I first arrived in America I was I'd listened to all these great jazz musicians for 10 years had all their records I went to bed every night with the albums all around my room and um, I turned on the television and I saw the first program I saw was some dance band playing, you know, for, for some ballroom dancing, and in the trumpet section were two of the most famous jazz musicians in the world, not playing jazz, just right. doing a gig, you know, getting getting a hundred dollars for the night, and that really, you know, really fazed me. I thought that's awkward. And then, and three days later, I, in the New York Symphony, I saw another one. It never occurred to me in my life that play, a guy who played jazz could also play the symphony. So it began to occur to me that just playing the trumpet was just a gig, you know. And I slowly realized that pretty much playing jazz was a hobby. You couldn't make money from it. I wasn't going to make a living playing jazz. And um, unless you reach the, the very, very right. high peaks. You know. And then I found that, you know, I did. I worked for two years, uh, not much differently in trumpet playing terms to say what the Beatles did in Hamburg. You know, everybody. You know, we did we did eight hours, 20 minutes on, 20 minutes off. We right. got there, was it eight hours? We got there at eight o'clock, went to three in the morning. No, that's for seven hours. 20 minutes on, 20 minutes off. In a terrible pub, with wow. the docks, and in Montreal, 
And our job was all the sailors would go off their boats, Nick. This is the first pub they'd passed on their way into town. They'd been at sea for three months. They had $2,000. And our job was to get every penny of that $2,000 before yeah. they went any further into town yeah. and they'd go back on the boat broke. And so we had to keep them in the pub and entertain them. And, you know, there were hookers and there was music. And, and, um, and there's nothing you didn't see in that pub. You saw the whole of life in that pub. And uh, so that, that taught me a lot. But it also taught me that that's the life of a musician, and that wasn't the life I had in mind for right. myself. So I went back to England, I went to the film industry. My dad, by the way, was a documentary film director, which is why you know, it's, a, it's a large part of, of what I am. And I got in the film industry, and then, sort of by luck, I, I got into um, music editing, because, because I could do, I learned editing, and I could do music too. And, um, and I made quite a lot of money. <clears throat> and I ended up, I worked on What's New Pussycat with Bert Bacharach, mm -hmm. and I did the score for the film, because Bert, Bert was a brilliant guy. I mean, he was a hero of mine. He had all these hits with Dion Warwick and Eric Coleman and people. But they'd never done a film score, and they hired him to come to England, a big coup. And in the film, there were 50 music sections, 50 places where music occurs in the film. And he wrote 50 tunes. He didn't understand what a score was. Scores basically one tune. Yeah, maybe right. two, that you work in and out, yeah. You know, Morris, Morris Jarre was the greatest film score writer ever. He just wrote one tune, and yeah. that was it, right through the film. You have a happy cue and a sad cue, but it's basically the well, same melody, yeah. That's already getting a bit too much. Do yeah. the one tune happy and the same, do it sad later yeah. on. But you know what I mean. And, yeah. And Bert hadn't understood, and he went to the studio, did the beauty. Wasty Pussycat was brilliant. In the evening, we went to the studio and recorded that, and Tom Jones came in. Everyone was ecstatic. And he did the rest of the score, but it wasn't a score. It was 50 little tunes. And I had to lay it all up with the film. I mean, you know, in the preview theater, we had to look at it. And it was terrible. It just killed the film stone dead. And so the producers, I thought, what are you going to do? It's a disaster. We have to use his music. The contract, this agent had told us, we had to use it. That he's gone. He's gone back to America. And I said, well, yeah, maybe I could take a couple of the songs and make a score. You know, and I said, could you? And that, you know, 25-year-old upstart being off with that, you know. Bert's incredible music, and I was being offered to do a score. So I stayed in the cutting room for three months, doing nothing. It was probably a bit less, about ten weeks. No, nothing but editing that music. And I literally edited I wrote tunes. Like The music would be on 35mm magnetic film, which is like tape, but it's 35mm wide with this rocket hose. And I'd just cut it up into notes, and I'd be writing tunes and transitions to move one song, one bit of song to another and I made the score, and I got paid an incredible amount of money because the Musicians' Union has this incredibly stupid rule where if you work for eight hours, whatever your daily rate, say your daily rate's $50, you know, if you go out the second eight hours, if you get to the end of the eight hours, you get time and a half, so you get $75. And if you go beyond that eight hours, the next time you get double, so you're getting 100 So if you were to do three eight hours, you'd get your 50, 75, and then 100 you get 225 for doing three for 24 hours but if you go on it doubles each period and i stayed there for 10 weeks they put a bed in the cutting room <laughs> so when i came out i was given twelve thousand dollars uh, twelve thousand pounds which i could tell you that really is 200 300 thousand pounds yeah wow. is this, this is 12 of uh, uh, twelve thousand pounds in 1965 yep and i went straight down to a garage and i bought a second hand ford thunderbird convertible it cost every penny of it I could have bought three houses, which today would be worth about eighteen million pounds. I bought a second-hand Ford Thunderbird, which has a two hundred percent import duty on it, so that's why it's so expensive. I could have bought two Rolls Royces, but I bought a second beautiful car, fantastic car. 
but it got me into the music industry, you see. Because yeah. um, I drove the car that first night to the Ad Lib Club, which was the great in trendy mm-hmm. disco in town. Well, you arrived in uh, at a seedy doorway in Piccadilly, you know, with urine-stained streets and hookers hanging around. And there's an elevator, and you get the elevator, and it takes you up. And when you come out the top, you're in a fur-lined place full of fish tanks and famous people in beautiful clothes. And it's, it's a miraculous transition from um, seedy Soho to this beautiful fantasy land. So I was going there every night and loving it. And two things happened. One is I began to meet very interesting people. And about two or three in the morning, I had to go back home because I'd have to be at Elstree in the studios to work in the cutting rooms late in the morning. And all these people I was meeting stayed, you know. And I said, how come How come you can stay? You know, I guess you have to work. They said, oh, man, we're in the music industry. So I and then one night I arrived and uh, apparently some uh, aspiring pop group had seen me arrive in this ridiculous car and they presumed I was a pop manager because no one, no one who was a pop manager would be so stupid as to waste so much money on a car like that <laughs> and then later in the night about two in the morning I was sitting with a cocktail sort of nodding and I remember to this day it was it was a Gloria by then yeah. So I was sitting with this cocktail and Gloria my name was playing and these guys came over to me and apparently they said, you know, we're a we're a pop group and we need a manager. Would you like to manage us? And I was just nodding to the music. Yeah. Oh, couldn't hear a word they're saying, you know. And so they took it to me, yes, and they turned up at my office the next day and told me I was managing them. So I said, oh, that's interesting. And that's the guys I made that's the guys I made that tape with, which Decker took. So I got me in the music industry. Amazing. And that's how I got in the music industry. Really. No, an amazing story. And then you became I thought it was funny when you added a few lines to You Don't Have to Say You Love Me in English. They were saying, My dear Simon, you've you've summed up the sixties in three words. You're absolute genius. <laughs> genius Simon. And you wrote that all the way to the bank. <laughs> That's such a load of shit or something. I mean, I, I, <laughs> it I, is a load of <laughs> the, uh, You don't have to say lovely. Is uh, Vicky, who I wrote it with, Vicky Wickham, and I were uh, no, not romantic people. We were. I mean, the 60s right. were all about romance. Vicky Wickham, she was the producer of Ready, Steady, Go, which was, which was one of the top yeah, music yeah, shows yeah. at the she time. Was a, she was a producer. She booked yeah. all the artists for it. And the 50s was romantic. You know, because you were romantic when you couldn't screw. You know, right. so you had to do nights and rings <laughs> right. and dinners, right. and put your hand out and kiss your hand. You know. But the sixties was about shagging. You know, it could have been invented. Yeah. Romance, you know, to get home and have some sex. And so we were not romantic. But when this, we put the acetate on, we had to write the words. And this big intro comes out, and we're thinking, "Girl, I said, you know, it's got, it's got to be a love. It's got to say, I love you.' You know, it's a big Italian ballad." And Vicky said, "Oh no, not I love you." that stuff and I said well you know I don't love you she said oh that's a bit extreme <laughs> so I said what about you don't, I don't have to love you she said oh okay well you don't have to love me yeah okay you don't have to love me it didn't quite fit so we put a couple more words you have to say you love me and then we you know that sounded really good it fitted it flowed very nicely and we put more words in and then we came up with the, the whole chorus and only later I realised that you don't have to say love me. It's not a romantic line. It's a pulling line. Yeah. Right. Because if it's three, 3 o'clock in the morning, you know, in the ad lib club, and somebody you fancy sitting next to you, and you want to take them home and have sex, 
And you say, come on, let's go home and have a shag. And they say, well, I don't know. I, I don't know you well enough. And you say, you don't have to say you love me or anything like that. You know, it's, it's just it's a way of putting people. <laughs> and inadvertently, Vicky and I, who are not romantic, could come up with that line. But probably it's in the back of our heads, it's something we'd often said or heard in a different context. Right. But later I realized that's wasn't romantic at all. The last time you chatted with us, Simon, you told a great story. I'm going to ask you to tell it again. You don't have to say you love me. That's it, 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 Dusty Springsfield. It was a big hit for her. So it's associated as a female song, a female lyric. But when Elvis covered it. I loved Elvis. So many people didn't like Elvis's version. You know, it's a real toughie, isn't it? I, I, there have been over 70 versions by that, of that I'm song sure. by well-known singers. Millions by other people. Um, it's extraordinary, the people who've done that song, you know, from country singers to Tom Jones to Tina Turner, everybody's done that damn song. But they always copy Dusty, you know. And then Elvis did it, and he did it. He sped it up, and he sang it. He threw away the lyrics, and he he, he does it in a macho way, like yeah. a guy who drives a truck, yeah. you know, and he's got this girlfriend, <laughs> and she talks about love. He's ah. Oh, you don't have to say love you. Just, just, just stay with me. It's all fine. You know, we're getting on fine. Don't have. All, I don't like all this romantic stuff. And he, it was really a, a butch macho way right. of making the song work. And it's absolutely brilliant. And, yeah. and most people didn't see that. They just thought, oh, he hasn't really caught what the song is. But he caught exactly what it was. You know, it's this this thing which which a lot of men find very difficult. Don't want to talk about all that romance. I love you. It's fine. You know, we don't talk about it. I thought he's brilliant version. It was very good. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. One more item if you're like me and want to eat better this year. Our friends at Factor have more than 35 inexpensive, pre-prepared, ready-to-heat and ready-to-eat, chef-crafted, restaurant-quality, and dietitian approved meals that will make eating better every day fun and delicious and your weekly meal planning a whole lot easier with no prepping, no cooking, and no cleanup necessary. Check it out yourself by going to factormeals.com forward slash talk. TV50. If you go to factormeals.com forward slash talk TV50, you'll find more than 35 different options a week to choose from that are ready to eat and, best of all, less expensive than takeout. Sign and save right now by going to factormeals.com forward slash talk TV50 and use code talk TV50 to get 50% off your order. Factormeals.com forward slash talk TV50. Use promo code talk TV50 to get 50% off your order. That's code TV 50 at factormeals.com forward slash TV 50 to get 50% off. Hi, this is Robert Hooks, and you are listening to TV Confidential, and keep doing it. Simon Napier-Bell is with us via Zoom. Simon Napier-Bell, legendary record producer, music manager, author, journalist, entrepreneur, documentary filmmaker, and raconteur. Simon's books on the music industry include Black Vinyl, White Powder, Sour Mouth, Sweet Bottom, I'm Coming to Take You to Lunch, and the book we've been talking about over the past few minutes, You Don't Have to Say You Love Me. All of Simon's books available Amazon.com, other online retailers. Simon also writes a Substack column that you can enjoy for free at Substack.com forward slash at Simon Napier Bell. Chuck? Another fine book by Simon is Black Vinyl, White Powder, The Real Story of the British Music Industry. Would you care to comment a little on that? Black Vinyl, Uh, White Powder. I'm proud of the title. It's a great title. title. And snort the title. (laughs) Uh, Well, 
Well, you know, it, it's a good book. Of all the books I've written, that is the best written book. I, I, I really reached a peak in writing well. Oh, I think this is time. You, know, you just write and rewrite. And I've spent a year on that book and six months, three months is writing it and nine months is polishing it. And it shows, you know, it really reads well. It, it it's a very well-written book. So I'm pleased with that. And it was sort of a history of the British music business. And of course, it touches a huge amount about America, too, because it's so interchangeable. Right. But it's about the British music business, or the British record business. That's really what it was. And my idea was to write that. And then uh, when I finished it, the publishers, it's very stiff, you know, it is all right, it's, but, you know, any journalist could do this. Where are you? And I, I was sort of thought, well, I shouldn't put myself in. You know, I'm going to be writing this book. I don't want to keep putting myself in. And he said the opposite. No, no, no. He said, that's that's what will give the book a lift, give it life. So I, I then took this thing I'd written and I inserted myself. So in every ten pages, I thought, bit of me here. And I put stories in. So I sort of uh, usurped. I, I I misappropriated the, the story of the British music business and put myself into it. So that's my story. So well, look, grandiose. You're a living. But, it, but it works. It works. It works really well. And, I, and looking back, the other publisher was, well, the editor was very shrewd. It was the right thing to do. Well, you're you're yeah. a you're a living, breathing character of. Of, of the music scene of that time. Well, I have an element. I sometimes have elements of modesty. <laughs> yes, but this is my show and you're my guest, so I get I get to dispel you of your modesty. <laughs> so anyway, so that's what it was. But um, it, I, I'm proud of that book. It's a very good, well, they're all good books, but that's a really well-written book. And I was reading this the other day, again, because I had to find pieces for my substack every week. Mm-hmm. And what I'm amazed by when I read it is my observations, because I read that and say, bloody hell, that's brilliant. Who said, oh, this is my book? You know, <laughs> I was like, how did I come up with that? <laughs> it's funny how in a, in a writing mood, you can come out with things or think of things in a way that you, well, maybe I do every day, and I just, you just throw them away in conversation. But suddenly there they are written down and polished up. And, um, yeah, it's full of very interesting things. As several people have said to me, I've, I learned about the music business from that book, or you know, right. I learned to become a manager by reading your book. And I thought, well, I never wrote it for that purpose. Mm-hmm. But but it did get the best reviews I've ever seen. Not ever seen for one of my books. It always got the best reviews I've ever seen for any book. And mm-hmm. I, So when it came out, I was a bit overwhelmed by, wow. by what people said. And it shows that that's what happens if you spend a lot of time yeah, writing it. Yeah, really working on it, right. I mean, the broadsheets in the UK, the Times, the Telegraph, the Guardian, the New York Times, all the big, you know, the papers you, you're proud to get a review from, all gave it five stars and said it was a fantastic book. And it really, it does come from that, you know, spending time on a book. Don't, don't rush, get it right. Simon Napier-Bell is with us via Zoom. Simon Napier-Bell, legendary record producer, music manager, author, journalist, documentary filmmaker, and raconteur. Chuck Carter is with us. We hope you'll stay with us as we continue our conversation with Simon here on TV Confidential. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk tvconfidential.net talk at tvconfidential.net you can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential x.com forward slash tvconfidential or at tvconfidential on instagram and if you're listening to us on the tv confidential podcast please be sure to hit 
the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay Area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411 or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.